0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Christopher Schmidt about his study of the sit-in protests that challenged Jim Crow in the South in 1960, entitled The Sit-Ins, Protest and Legal Change in the Civil Rights Era. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Yeah, um, I am a professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law, where I teach constitutional law and legal history, and I'm also an associate dean here at Chicago Kent. And I also have a joint appointment with the American Bar Foundation, which is a uh, non legal research institute. And at the Bar Foundation, I also serve as the editor of our peer-reviewed journal, Law and Social Inquiry.
0: So you wear quite a few hats. <laughs> <laughs> I keep busy. Uh, what was it that, uh, led you to write this book? Uh,
1: this book actually began as my third year law school seminar paper. So I started off training. Um, I thought I was going to be a history professor. I went and, um, earned a PhD in American studies from Harvard. And during my process of, um, getting the PhD and doing my dissertation, I became more and more interested in legal history and then eventually decided I wanted to go to law school uh, after I completed the Ph.D. So I went directly from completing the Ph.D. into law school. And then during law school, I was looking around for some new topics to work on. And during my third year um, seminar, I decided I wanted to write a study of the sit-ins. And specifically, I was intrigued by the sit-ins because – In my constitutional law class, we studied uh, a series of cases, which are known as the sit-in cases, which were basically appeals of criminal convictions deriving from students who had participated in the sit-in protests. And I was just fascinated by some of the legal issues that emerged in these protests. And I thought it would be an interesting seminar paper to try and talk about how social protests influences the development of constitutional law, constitutional doctrine. And I decided to use this as a case study for that for that, uh, that, inquiry.
0: And from there, it develops into a very interesting book, which provides a, a, a very fascinating, uh, describes this interaction between law and activism. And as you explain at the beginning of the book, it starts with the activism. I was wondering if you could set the scene for us by explaining the genesis of the protests and how they went from being this local action to being a region-wide movement that received national attention.
1: Yeah, it's really a fascinating story, and it's one of the iconic uh, stories of the civil rights era. So it began in Greensboro, North Carolina. We have four uh, first-year college students at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College. They're sitting in their dorm rooms talking about the experience of being young black men in the American South. This is late 1959. Eventually it folds over into early 1960. And they're talking about their experiences and they're trying to think about what they can do. And clearly they're frustrated with the situation, but there also um, weren't a lot of models out there for exactly what uh, young black college students could do in this situation. And they did some studying, they did some talking, and finally they decided that what they wanted to do was to go into a lunch counter, uh, a lunch counter in which the policy at most of these southern lunch counters were that African-Americans could go into the stores, could buy items in the stores, could even go to the lunch counter and oftentimes buy food, but they weren't allowed to sit down at these lunch counters. So these four students decided they were going to go in there and they were going to take a seat at the lunch counter and asked to be served. Uh, and on February 1st, uh, 1960, mid afternoon, they walk into the Greensboro Woolworth store. They buy a few items in the store, then they sit down at the lunch counter and they ask to be served. And they refuse. And they decide they're just going to stay there. And they stayed there through the afternoon until it closed in the uh, late afternoon. And then they went back to school. And then they decided they wanted to do it again. And this time, they talked to some of their friends, and they got some more people to come. So the second day of the Greensboro protests, there were about 20 students there. And then they do it again the day after this, and they start bringing more and more people. And by the end of the week, it started on a Monday, by Friday, there are a couple hundred Uh, African-American college students from the Greensboro area who are coming in and participating in these sit-ins. They start having shifts. They start organizing themselves. And eventually this becomes a big story. It becomes a major story in the local press, of course, and then it starts getting picked up by the national press. And then what happens, which is really amazing, and um, in some ways these protests themselves are not unprecedented. African-Americans had protested against segregation in this form by sitting down and refusing to leave. But what really was amazing about this protest is how it took off. So by the end of the week, you have hundreds of people in Greensboro. And then within just a week, it starts getting picked up in other cities in the Upper South. So other North Carolina cities start to have their own sit-in protests. People hear what's going on, and they start doing the same thing. And then by the end of the month, we have protests that are going on in 30 different cities across the South and seven different states Two months after that very first protest, it spread to 48 different cities across the south in 11 different states. And then by the end of the spring, people estimate that some 50,000 uh, students had taken part in the sit-in protest by the, by the end of that spring. And eventually hundreds of them would also be arrested for what they were doing.
0: Now, what you've described is an event that is familiar to millions of Americans. The uh, images are iconic. The uh, lunch counter itself today is a uh, part of an ex- exhibit in, in Washington, D.C. And yet, as you explain the beginning of your book, we only know and we only really study part of the story and, and that there is a, a much more... A uh, complex uh, dimension of it that we don't address. And it's one that, that you know reflects the degree to which the sit-ins also were a deviation from what was the uh, focus of so much of the civil rights movement uh, throughout most of the 1950s. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon the, the key arguments you're making in this book and how they fit within the scholarship of uh, the civil rights movement.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So everything I just told you about the sit-ins, that's actually pretty well known. You pick up any uh, book on the sit-in movement, and it's going to have a section about the student sit-in movement. And the Greensboro story has been told over and over again. And there's also some quite nice... Uh, historical case studies of different communities, including there's a wonderful book on Greensboro, there's some quite good books on places like Nashville, which is another hotbed of the sit-in movement. So we know the story of the sit-ins about how they um, took off in this particular way. Um, but actually, we've never actually had a book written completely on the sit-ins, which I know back when I was my in my third year of law school and I was doing research, I assumed I was actually gonna find the books. I thought there were gonna be more than one books that had been written on this topic. And then I was gonna do my study about how social protest intersects with constitutional development. And what I found is in fact, there is no books necessarily dedicated to this. So one of my goals in this is just to fill, you know, what's a gap in the historical literature. We need a book on the sit-ins. And one of my goals was to uh, make an effort to provide the the first comprehensive book on the the sit-in movement. But then above that, above the fact of just that this is a story that's well-known but hasn't actually been the focus of a single book, uh, I do have an argument, and that argument is about the role of law. Basically, my argument is that we can't really understand why the sit-ins took place when they did and why they unfolded as they did without appreciating the distinctive legal context that was behind the sit-ins. And then the second argument is that uh, part of the story of the sit-ins is not just the sit-in protests themselves, but what happened because of the sit-ins. And much of my book is focused on a debate over the meaning of the constitution that was very much sparked by the sit-ins. And basically the central question is, is it constitutionally permissible to have racial segregation in the lunch counters, which are privately owned and operated, but are open to the public. And that makes a rather difficult constitutional issue. So sort of two parts to my argument, both focusing on trying to introduce law to the story one having to do with law, helping to explain how this historical event took place and why it took place. And the other one is trying to trace this really fascinating constitutional debate that the sit-ins sparked in the years uh, following the sit-in movement. So that takes my story from this 1960 sit-ins up until the mid-1960s as these legal debates are playing out.
0: One of the things you emphasize in uh, the early chapters is how in the late 1950s, the civil rights movement has a very legally focused strategy towards addressing uh, Jim Crow, and this is something with which we're very familiar: Brown versus Board of Education, uh, you know, the Little Rock Seven, uh, and, 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 and uh, uh, so forth. You have this. You have this. Uh, you have this you know, legal cases that are proceeding through the court system that are attempting to strike down these legal challenges. One of the things that was very interesting was you make it clear how the students in, in many ways just uh, disdain this entire legalistic approach and that they, they adopted one that was much more focused upon direct action. Why did they do that? What was it, what was it exactly that, that, that uh, led them to think that, that their direct action approach was much more effective? Yeah, so so much of the sit-ins, to, to really appreciate why the students acted as they did,
1: you have to sort of capture what they were trying to do and what they were focusing on and why there was so uh, really a mix of deep frustration as well as deep optimism. And this is fascinating, just trying to resurrect the mindset of these students who are taking part in this incredible protest. Um, it was this really powerful, powerful mix of um, frustration with what the situation in which they were living, as well as real hope that they could change it. And the frustration was twofold. The frustration was certainly targeted at the obvious problem that was around them, which was uh, Jim Crow segregation, racial discrimination, pervasive racism. So clearly that was their primary target. They were trying to change the world to make it a better place. But also a lot of the frustration, and this is really fascinating as I dug into this, this student's story, a lot of frustration was also aimed at older African Americans, and it was aimed at the kind of uh, tactics that was prevalent within the African American activist community prior to the 1960s, which was largely focused on formal legal change, specifically focused on trying to lobby legislatures to try and change laws. By 1960, the federal government, uh, Congress, had finally passed. The first uh, civil rights law it wasn't much, but it was the first one that they had passed since Reconstruction. Um, but also we see a lot of activism focused on litigation. And this, of course, is the primary work of the NAACP, the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. And this is an organization that uh, led the litigation challenge that culminated in Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 Supreme Court decision desegregating public schools across the country. So. These students recognized that there was change going on around them, but they were frustrated with the pace of change. And they were frustrated with what they saw as a relatively limited results that were that they were actually seeing from some of these changes. If you think about it, the Brown case really played a powerful role. And it didn't play a powerful role as I think sometimes we overly simplistically think, which is Brown happened in 1954. And somehow it inspired African Americans to then take to the streets, and somehow it sparked the civil rights movement. Uh, the story is actually a lot more complicated than that, because just look at the timing: 1954, the six years after it, before the sit-in protests, you have the Montgomery bus boycotts. But the connection between Brown and the Montgomery boycotts was not just that um, African Americans were inspired to boycott buses because of Brown. What I see with the students in 1960 was that they were inspired by the NWCP and what they did with Brown, but they also saw it as a cautionary tale. And they saw it as something that they actually wanted to avoid. And that was because they were all about the age, if you think back to, you know, these are, in 1960, they're, say, 20 years old. That means when Brown came down, they were uh, maybe in middle school, starting high school. Uh, they were old enough to understand what Brown meant. They were old enough to talk to their teachers and to um, develop some sort of hope. That now that Brown came down, their lives would be different. But the vast majority of African Americans who took part in the student sit movement in nineteen sixty, they still went to fully segregated schools. They were growing up in the South, and the South was largely defiant against Brown versus Board of Education. There's only minimal school desegregation taking place in the five, six, seven years after Brown versus Board of Education, and it really wouldn't take off until about um, the mid nineteen sixties. So when they looked to the lawyers and the work that the lawyers had done, they admired what they did. I mean, how could you not admire Third Thurgood Marshall and the work that they were doing? But they also said that it hadn't really achieved much. And then one of their goals was to try and find an alternative to litigation. They said that's the, you know, the civil rights approach is what the lawyers are doing. It's about litigation lobbying. We need to try something different because that hasn't really worked. And therefore, when you see them, uh, the students, trying to create their identity as a distinct movement a lot of what they uh, tried to do was to frame themselves in juxtaposition or opposition even to what the lawyers were doing. So the lawyers and Brown, it did inspire them, but in this sort of really interesting way in that it both raised their expectations, but then it increased their disappointment. And then it moved them to try and be more, be creative and finding alternative ways to try and create social change.
0: There's something uh, as I was reading those, uh, sections of your book that I, I thought was very prescient in terms of anticipating what was going to happen in the 1960s with the uh, baby boom generation, the idea of youth-driven change, that, that they really seem to embody that spirit long before you see it cropping up in the counterculture and the Vietnam protests and so forth.
1: I think that's right. I mean, it's actually interesting because if you read a lot of um, commentary among activists in the late 1950s, They're actually incredibly down on the younger generation. They're saying, you know, maybe they're going off to college, they're getting too comfortable, they're getting um, sort of co-opted by consumer culture. And a lot of them are sort of being nostalgic back for their youth during the 1930s when it seemed like the younger generation was more engaged, more active. And there's a lot of um, lamenting about how the students didn't really seem to be engaged. And then all of a sudden, and it really did come quite quickly, you had the student sit-in movement, and then, of course, you have the 60s following that, in which you have uh, the younger generation leading all sorts of social protest change movements. Um, but it, uh, the sit-ins really was, in, in many ways, the spark for that. It really awoken a lot of people. And certainly a lot of um, white Northern College students were inspired by the sit-ins. Some of them actually came down to uh, join the sit-ins. There were some white uh, sympathizers who took part in the sit-ins. And then you have actually a big uh, outbreak of um, sympathy boycotts. So if you're going to college, say, in New York City, there are Woolworth stores in New York City. Woolworths is a national chain. Now, those New York City Woolworths don't segregate, but you could go boycott that New York City Woolworths because you're protesting that the Woolworth Corporation allows their southern stores to choose to segregate. So there are ways in which all sorts of uh, people around the country, particularly um, college-age people could actually, um, take part in one way or another in the protest movement. And then of course, these, um, sympathy boycotts and organizations, uh, organization around the student sit-in movement in 1960, they would then inspire, uh, subsequent protests. Some of it involved in the civil rights movement, some of it in the free speech movement out in Berkeley and all sorts of, uh, youth oriented, uh, protests that really characterized the coming decade.
0: Your uh Reference to the attitude of older African Americans towards the youth in the 1950s is actually quite funny considering what you write about in the book as to their initial reaction to the sit-ins, which as you describe was was, uh, in many uh, corners was far from enthusiastic. In fact, there was uh, uh, a lot of concern expressed that it was the wrong thing to do.
1: Yeah, and there's concern from a couple of different angles. Um, certainly a lot of the older generation of African-Americans were just wary of this particular tactic. Uh, so there are a lot of parents of, of the students who participate in the sit-ins who were concerned about the safety of their children. And they're concerned about um, the costs it could have on the larger African-American community. So there was some hesitancy, particularly in the very early stages of the sit-ins. But what is really fascinating to see is that a lot of these people came around and they came around pretty quickly. Um, And in fact, some of the really strong criticism the students had for the older generation. They say, our parents didn't do enough and now we need to stand up and do something. Um, It ended up being quite unfair because ultimately the older generation of African-Americans was integral to the success of the sit-ins. Because as these protests took off and as they're shown to be um, uh, largely peaceful and there was certainly – a response by the white segregationists to it. But overwhelmingly, the people who took part in the sit-ins um, were not subject to physical violence, and most of them were actually not arrested. You do see the older community seeing something in this. And they're there are all, again, there are all sorts of ways. This is one of the most important things about the sit-ins. There are so many ways in which people who were not actually sitting on those bar stools could get involved. So the older African-American community largely boycotted the stores that were targeted by the sit-ins. So therefore, there's a strong economic cost by segregating businesses. They also started raising money and the money would become important when the students began to get arrested uh, because they helped pay for their legal expenses and for bail expenses. So ultimately you actually see the African American community in most of these southern um, uh, cities, they are coming around behind them. So that's part of the story. That's just the people in the local communities. Now you also see some um, initial hesitancy toward their protests by the lawyers. Right. So by the NAACP, particularly the New York based uh, national NAACP and particularly their litigation branch, which is called the Legal uh, Defense Fund, LDF, which is what Thurgood Marshall was running at the time. Um, And they're skeptical toward the sit ins, at least when they first happened. And they're skeptical pretty much for two basic reasons. And this connects back up to this critical role that law plays in this history. One reason is just they're skeptical about direct action protests as a form of social change. Most of these people are lawyers, and they believe that law, changing laws, is the most effective way to have lasting change. And they are concerned that some of these protest activities—they get a lot of attention, they make a lot of noise—but they don't quite change things in the long term. So Thurgood Marshall actually was, uh, again, particularly early in the protest, was just skeptical about the tactics. But they were also skeptical, at least critical, of the particular target the students chose. So targeting these uh, privately owned, privately operated, but open to the public accommodations like lunch counters, um, they are very powerful as uh, a spectacle. They were very powerful as a target for social protests. Again, reporters could be there. The pictures are so powerful. Uh, and these are something uh, – the discrimination in this area was a very – Um, uh, it really resonated with a lot of African Americans who came to support the protest movement, but the lawyers actually had a different view on it and the lawyers had a different view on it because they knew about the existing doctrine related to the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment. So this is a provision of the constitution with which they won Brown versus board of education. This is a provision of the constitution that would really be the main tool for advancing the cause of racial equality, uh, in the civil rights era. Uh but the problem was is that the Fourteenth Amendment's Equal Protection Clause had what's called a state action limitation. Meaning if you look at the text of the Fourteenth Amendment, if you look at how the court has applied the Fourteenth Amendment, it generally only applies to state actors, or put in another way, it generally only applies to the government. So Brown versus Board of Education, this is not a problem because we're talking about public schools. and public schools are run by the government. They're clear state actors. So, of course, the Equal Protection Clause applies to public schools. The only question in Brown was whether segregation violated the 14th Amendment. And that's what the court ultimately concluded in Brown. But even if you accept that segregation is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, at least in 1960, it wasn't clear whether that um, particular interpretation of the 14th Amendment necessarily meant that privately owned, privately operated public accommodations Uh, were prevented from uh, racial discrimination, that they couldn't segregate because of this idea that they're not necessarily state actors. They're private businesses. Uh, So Thurgood Marshall and his allies and um, the NWCP, his fellow lawyers, they were just skeptical about whether the students had actually found a target of protest with which they could create an effective legal defense to help out the students. And they at this time in 1960, they just felt like there are so many other legal issues that from their perspective was more pressing. And most important in this regard was actually getting the implementation of Brown versus Board of Education, actually implementing that school desegregation decision. And they thought that they had they'd won Brown. It's just a matter of convincing the cell through litigation, through council litigation to abide by Brown. Here, they felt there's a whole new legal issue, a legal issue that they weren't quite certain that they could win on in court. Uh, And they thought the students were kind of barking up the wrong tree here. So they chose the wrong tactic, I think some of them thought. Uh, And they certainly thought that they probably chose the wrong target uh, as a matter of law. So there's lawyers actually had a lot of skepticism early on in the protest.
0: You... Describe how that uh, skepticism was was shared by the students. We've already referenced this, but I I was struck by how you described that to the point where even when you did have arrests of students at the lunch counters and they would then uh, be, they would then enter the legal system, how they would uh, sometimes uh, refuse legal advice to the NAACP. They would, they would refuse bail. They would uh, prefer to, to be in jail and serve out their time and and how the lawyers approached this as, as it just was, beyond their, their, their imagining that, that, that this was the, 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 the right way to go. And yet the students insisted upon it.
1: Yeah, so this is just a, a perfect example about how the lawyers and the students were fighting the same general fight. They were both fighting to try and break down Jim Crow. They both wanted to see uh, desegregation of these lunch counters, but just such different perspectives about the bef- best way to get there. Because for the lawyers, you know, they would always advise their clients, you know, if you can stay out of jail, stay out of jail. If you can pay bail and stay out of jail, then do that. Always appeal your cases. Well, And again, eventually the NWCV lawyers eventually uh, came to a position where they felt like they could make a strong argument on behalf of the students. Uh, initially they're skeptical, but then they sat down, they were, had big conferences. So eventually within about a month, month and a half of, after the first protest, you have the NWCP lawyers squarely coming out saying, we're going to defend these students. And if need be, we're going to try and take us all the way to the Supreme court. So they eventually find a way in which they can back them. But then at this point, exactly right. The students are finding these, uh, alternative tactics Because what the lawyers wanted was the lawyers said, "Okay, you can do your protest. You get arrested. We have our test case, multiple test cases. Now let us take over. You stay out of jail. You keep your noses clean. And then we'll take this and see how far we can get through the litigation system. The students were like, no, you just don't understand. right? The whole point is the protest. And then they found these opportunities that when they were arrested and thousands of them were arrested – on charges of disorderly conduct or uh, trespassing, because generally there were actually, there were no um, Jim Crow laws that applied to these lunch counters. or at least the the Southern states were no longer trying to enforce them after Brown v. Board of Education basically held them unconstitutional. Um, But then they decided that once they got arrested, they didn't just want to then hand off the issue to the lawyers, because that defeated the whole purpose of a student-led movement, of an alternative to litigation, they were trying to find ways in which they could amplify their protests. And one of the most powerful ways they could amplify their protests was to refuse to pay jail, to, go, uh, uh, to pay bail and to go to jail or, um, to serve uh, a jail sentence after conviction, because this was a really powerful platform to help amplify the injustice of what was going on. And Martin Luther King Jr. who at this point was, um, playing a role of a sort of informal advisors for them, some of the students was encouraging them to do this, because this is part of his philosophy of how nonviolent protests can uh, bring this issue to a head within the community. Um, so, yeah, they and the lawyers kept saying, no, like, you, you know, we, let us take over here. This is our job is to sort of take these appeals through. At one point, Thurgood Marshall is giving a speech to some of the students. And he said, you know, you've done your job. Now let us let us do ours. And um, John Lewis, who would then, you know, one of the, uh, the leading sit in protesters from the national community, who would then go on to become a long time member of Congress, in his memoirs, he had this wonderful line where saying, this, you know, the students looked at each other and said, you know, he just didn't quite get it. I mean, Thurgood Marshall didn't quite understand what they were trying to do. Um, now, it is worth noting that this is a divergence uh, in terms of their perspectives on the protests. I do ultimately conclude that the lawyers and the students were able to come together and Um, a kind of workable relationship. It wasn't, they didn't always see eye to eye, but eventually they could both, both do their thing. Meaning that the NAACP lawyers, they got plenty of material with which to take their appeals. And they did eventually get these cases to the Supreme court. And that's part of the later part of the book. Um, but the students can then keep doing their protests. And if they chose to, they could go to jail. Um, and so you had sort of a two track protest movement in which two different groups with two different visions of the best pathway to social change could each do their own thing um, without necessarily stepping each other's toes.
0: One of the, uh, you just referenced something that, that is a very uh, interesting point in your book, which is that by 1960, Southern authorities are no longer actively enforcing Jim Crow laws because there's an awareness that even though the laws are on the books, they're no longer really enforceable. And, and, what that highlights is the degree to which so much of Jim Crow in 1960 exists because of inertia. And I thought that was best spelled out in your chapter where you're describing the opposition to the sit-ins. You detail the uh, the uh, spectrum of actors involved uh, in ter- from the business owners – to police, local officials, uh, right up to uh, the state level, and 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 the white supremacist counter protesters, and, and and for so many of them, and, and this is I, I thought was 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 hilarious. Everyone was just passively hoping hoping that someone else would take care of it. That, that someone else would step in and enforce this law. You had legal – you had, uh, legal, you had uh, you know, law enforcement was hamstrung by the need to have something on which to act. You had business officials who or businessmen who just wanted the whole thing to go away. You had local officials who didn't want to uh, have their communities highlighted in this fashion. There is this constant – there's this constant uh, – uh, a willingness to to sort of take this head on by by so many of these people who are basically the ones against whom the students are protesting.
1: Yeah, so so I have to say, um, the chapter of the book that most surprised me at how interesting it got was this chapter I dedicated, as as you said, is a chapter called "The Opponents." So I try to sort of get into the group that stood against the student sit-in movement. And the more I delved into this, it did become fascinating. And so the themes that emerge in this chapter are one that the opponents were deeply divided. Right, So you have these all different groups, and once you start breaking them apart, you actually realize that their interests did not necessarily align, and their ability to try and follow through in their opposition to the protest. Did not necessarily align, and then the other thing that comes in is one of the reasons that these divisions were so consequential in the sit-in movement. And ultimately, one of my key arguments is that much of the success of the sit-ins had to do with the opposition being divided. But one of the reasons these divisions were so consequential was the law, right? So the legal issues simply played out differently in the sit-ins than they did, for example, in opposition to school of desegregation. Um, And that had consequences for how uh, the opponents were pulled apart or how they could try and mobilize against uh, what the the protesters are doing. And a lot of this comes down to the topic I was talking about before, which is the limits of the 14th Amendment and the state action doctrine. So what you have after Brown versus Board of Education, basically, southern states are no longer able to directly enforce segregation laws. So actually, um, although there are some laws that are still on the books, basically by 1960— Uh, Southern states are not trying to enforce laws that say African-Americans and whites cannot sit together. So therefore, the burden of maintaining Jim Crow segregation was largely moved, at least from direct uh, policing of segregation through segregation laws. It was then shifted on the shoulders of private citizens, at least in the realm of the lunch counter sit-ins. So the people who ultimately had the decision— about whether to segregate or not segregate by 1960 in the arena of public accommodations were the people who ran the public accommodations. So ultimately, the people who ran the lunch counters could decide, do I want to have a segregated lunch counter or do I want to have a non-segregated lunch counter? And at that time, there were basically no laws telling them they had to go one way or the other. Right? So segregation laws had been either repealed or no longer being enforced. Or And on the other side... Uh, Southern states had no public accommodation laws requiring non-discrimination like there were in many northern states. And eventually there would eventually be a federal law that would come out of this debate. So they had a choice. Most of the southern um, business owners chose to segregate. But then you had to sit in protests and they start targeting them. And it's important that the protesters see one of their primary targets – Not necessarily being, you know, courts or legislatures or Congress, but one of their targets were simply the owners of the lunch counters or the operators of the lunch counters who were right across the counter from them. And one of the ways in which they could win was just to persuade them to change their policy. Right? Um, So you have lots of different targets available. And in many cases, the protesters actually were able to persuade these lunch counter operators to change their policies. Most of the times they were – most of the time the lunch counter operators were less willing to do so. And then the question is, well, what is the role of the law here in terms of creating the options that they can and can't do? The lunch counter operators, they had the ability when the protesters came in to activate the law against the protesters, meaning that they could call the police and say there are people in my restaurant who I don't want here. And then they could enforce a trespassing law against them saying that they're trespassing on my property. Now eventually it'd be an interesting question about whether in fact that was racially discriminatory to use trespassing law against them and that's something the courts would eventually pick up. But they clearly knew that they had that option and they you know suspected that they could uh, that would be allowable in court. Um, but then the question is, did they actually want to do that? In many cases, not necessarily. Some of these people, um, you know, they're all segregationists of a sort, but they had different commitments to segregation. Some of them were more opportunistic segregationists, meaning that they segregated their, their lunch counters because they believe that's what their predominantly white clientele wanted. Some of them were more true believers in principles of segregation. Uh, so you have variations in terms of how deep their commitment was. But also they're business people. And most of these lunch counters actually had some significant portion of their revenue, which was from Uh, African-American customers and any of most of them could look around and realize the direction in which history is moving and they could probably assume that these people who they're denying service today at some point in the not too distant future they're probably going to be required to serve them and they weren't quite sure they necessarily wanted to be throwing potential paying customers in jail it just wasn't necessarily very good business policy so most of the lunch counter owners particularly in the upper south were quite ambivalent about this now other people who can be classified within this broad category of segregationists, were not quite so ambivalent. So we have the police. The police would show up at these lunch counter protests. And the police generally want to maintain law and order. And these protests oftentimes were uh, quite combustible situations. So in some situations, they would be fine taking these people off to jail and trying to shut down these protests. But, of course, at the time, unless the lunch counter owner said, I want to press trespassing charges, the police generally couldn't do anything. And if the protests were orderly, they would have trouble, uh, you know, declaring that there's some sort of disorderly conduct taking place, unless sometimes they would do that as well. The, the, but generally,
0: they, the, the passage from your book that stands out is when you describe, I think it was the initial Greensboro uh, protest when the officer shows up, and one of the protesters describes how he was basically pacing behind them back and forth, he had his club in his hand, but it, it was like he was impotent. He couldn't you know, actually follow through. The, the best he could do is just leer at them. And, and ultimately, you know, and, 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 and at that point, that was the limit of his action.
1: It's the perfect image, right? So the, 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 the police officer has um, he has uh, incentive, but not a power at that point. The bunch counter proprietor is the one who has the power, but less incentive. Right. And they're kind of looking at you. I mean, if you look at the cover of my book. I was able to find this picture, which I was just so, so excited when I found it in which you have the protesters in the middle of the picture. You have the police officer looking down behind them and then you have the lunch counter operator standing and looking at the protesters and it's kind of a standoff. And one of the points of the book is to say, well, why was this standoff? Oftentimes the situation, uh, a lot of it has to do with the, the legal issues there. Um, and again, then I also pan back in the chapter and I look, at you know, it's not just the police officers and the proprietors, but also politicians, right? We know these southern politicians, particularly on the state level, the governors, were uh, – they were mostly elected on strong segregationist platforms. Now, when it came to denouncing Brown for of education, school desegregation, what they could do, these state-level segregationist politicians – they would consolidate authority, and they were able to create a movement of massive resistance against school desegregation because they were able to consolidate authority around into by the state level, and then make a strong stand in which they had incentives and power to make a stand against school desegregation, against Brown versus Board of Education. Now, move forward to the sit-ins. The state-level politicians kept asking. You know, I had these wonderful letters from the governor of North Carolina to the. Um, the operator of the Greensboro Woolworths, in which these first protests took place, in which he's basically, you know, begging him, like, start throwing these kids in jail. We got to clean this up. And the owner of the Woolworths is trying to explain, well, I don't really want to throw them in jail, right? He's just trying to sort of say, look at my situation. Is this really best for me? So again, you have this disconnect. Just like with the police, you have the same thing with the southern politicians, in which they have all sorts of incentive to show themselves as cracking down on this lawless um, uh, integrationist movement. But yet they didn't really have the authority to do so. They couldn't just order the police officers to uh, arrest all these students. In the Deep South, sometimes they, they did that. But generally in the Upper South, he was re- the governor uh, was kind of reduced to the same position of the police officer. The governor was just writing these letters saying, you know, we really should be arresting these students. I urge you to arrest these students. Um, but this is why it, the sit-ins just turned out differently. You didn't have a strong uniform crackdown against the sit-ins. You had some sporadic crackdowns in certain locations. You had certainly some private violence against the sit-in protesters. That was all there. And you did have some proprietors who were interested in pressing charges. And then, again, you did have uh, students numbering somewhere in the thousands who were eventually arrested. But this is of some 50,000 people who took part overall. So the protests, again, this is one of the powerful things about the protests. The vast majority of the protests continued on. They were not shut down by Southern law enforcement. But enough of them were thrown in jail and enough of the cases did get into court that you were given something for the lawyers to work with. And you're also given this very powerful platform when students are get thrown in jail. It did um, uh, extend their message in these really powerful ways. But this is a fascinating part of the sit-ins, which really hadn't been written up in the historiography in the sit-ins, because uh, this is really some rather intricate legal doctrine that's lurking in the background. That helps explain why the sit-ins turned out as they did. Again, we could tell much of the story of the sit-ins without focusing on these legal issues. But once you start bringing the legal issues from the background to the foreground, it really helps give us a lot more explanation about why the uh, the protest turned out as they
0: did. Let's turn to those legal issues because you uh, uh, move from talking about the protests and the response to them to how the courts, in particular the Supreme Court, dealt with them. How was it that ultimately the Supreme Court came to hear these cases? What sort of cases were they hearing? And what were the uh, positions of the justices on these various issues? Yeah, so I dedicate a whole chapter to uh, the Supreme Court, a chapter called The
1: Justices, where I try and capture their perspective on the sit-in. And when I, what I basically conclude is that the sit-in cases, and there's a series of cases that um, come out of the sit-in protests. Beginning in 1961, the Supreme Court hears some of the, uh, the first cases about in the sit-ins. And every term at the Supreme Court, between 1961 and 1964, they hear more rounds of these sit-in cases. Um, and they actually have a lot of trouble dealing with them. And what i uh, concluded the sit-ins. Uh, I call him one of the great aberrations of the Warren Court. So we think of the Warren Court, the court under Chief Justice Earl Warren, which really sort of announced its presence with the Brown v. Board of Education decision back in 1954. Uh, the Warren Court is recalled by history largely correctly as being a court which uh, went out of its way to align itself with the cause of the civil rights movement, oftentimes creating new legal doctrine in ways to try to try to support. Uh, the cause of racial justice during this period. But in the sit-in cases, they didn't quite do this. And in the sit-in cases, the Supreme Court never, even though they had these cases term after term, never squarely said that it's a violation of the Constitution to have racial segregation in these lunch counters. Never squarely said that Southern states couldn't use the police to enforce a racially neutral race uh, uh, trespassing statute against sit-in protesters. Meaning, if you look at a trespassing statute, it doesn't say anything about uh, race it just is a trespassing statute that can be used uh, in an ostensibly racial neutral manner and the court never said that these people couldn't get thrown in jail if the lunch counter owners believed that they uh, didn't want to serve them even if it was because of their race they weren't ever able to sort of come to that position which the NAACP lawyers were urging them to do from uh, 1960 onwards so it's an aberration so what I try and do this chapter is trying to figure out well why did the Warren Court break pattern in this particular line of cases, right? They made new law for Brown v. Board of Education. They made new law in the First Amendment with a lot of the civil rights issues and some other equal protection issues, they made new law. But in these cases, they didn't. Um, And the reasons I I eventually uh, conclude that held the court back, some of it has to do with that doctrine I was talking about before. The state action doctrine is a difficult area of law. And a lot of justices have some concerns that even if they were willing to extend or modify the way the state action limitation works, such that maybe the Equal Protection Clause could capture the kind of activity that's taking place in sit-in protests, they're concerned about, well, what is the principle that would uh, differentiate that from other areas where maybe it shouldn't extend that far? So they just had – these are just typical lawyer-judge kind of concerns about the scope of uh, legal change and how legal doctrine operates. Some of it had to do with institutional concerns. So justices were quite concerned about the fact that they weren't quite sure that courts were the best institutions to draw some of the lines that would need to be drawn between what is constitutional, what is unconstitutional forms of um, uh, racial discrimination in this particular area. So much of it was self-consciousness about wouldn't it just be better if legislatures dealt with this? Then a whole other uh, component of, I think, the resistance to really embracing the student's claim, at least as a uh, matter for the judges, had a lot to do with some of the judges, justices in the Supreme Court, were simply uh, wary of direct action protests as an alternative to litigation. Uh, And Justice Hugo Black, who in many of the cases of the Warren Court era was really leading the charge, pushing strong equal protection readings, pushing strong free speech readings, he was, throughout much of the the sitting cases, he was adamantly against the position of the student protesters. And a lot has had to do with he just didn't like protests. He thought protests were sort of uh, going to set the stage for a larger disorder. He thought that even if one protest looks like a good thing, it's going to get flipped around. It's going to go too far. The other side is going to start using protests. And he just had a certain sense that legal change should come not by demands from the streets, but should come through an orderly process of litigation. And he really just didn't like what these students were doing. And this is so one of the, the, the goals of this chapter is identify what I see as something of an irony, that the very elements that made the protest so powerful as acts of protest, which was really the uh, the sacrifice and the heroism and the strong confrontational element of the protest in the streets. This is what captured people's imagination. This is what got them into the front pages of national newspapers, this very thing that made them powerful as protests ultimately undermined their potential um, within the Supreme Court because some of these justices just didn't like the idea of protest as being a vehicle for creating legal change.
0: As you mentioned, the justices were uh you know approached this with the attitude that it was better for the legislature to uh address this and ultimately the legislative branch did. What does Congress ultimately do in response to the issues of the sit-ins that uh effectively um you know addresses these issues and, and what do they leave unaddressed?
1: Yeah so this is the the final chapter of the book turns from the courts to um the legislature. And specifically, I look at the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which includes a provision called Title II, in which it effectively outlaws, as a matter of federal law, racial discrimination in restaurants, hotels, and lunch counters. So eventually the, the great victory, at least as a matter of law, for the sit-in protests. It didn't take place in the courts, but it took place in Congress through the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, the 1964 Civil Rights Act largely does resolve this issue in that most public accommodations are going to be covered by uh, this particular law. So all the lunch counters that were targeted by the, the sit-in protests, they will, after 1964, be required to have uh, non-discriminatory service. Um, But it is interesting if you look at the details of how it was, the uh, law was written, there were some minor carve-outs. Um, for example, when applied to um, uh, hotels, you have carve-outs for certain people who uh, ran um, uh, lodging accommodations in which they were quite small. And if they lived in the same accommodation as, in which they were renting out, they could actually be exempted from the law. And this was called the Mrs. Murphy exemption, uh, the idea being – that uh, certain people have a, some sort of privacy interest and in that they don't necessarily need to be, uh, should not be regulated by this particular law. Uh, so it's a pretty comprehensive law, but there are some small details that do create some carve-outs. And what I try to say in this chapter is that these carve-outs were in part a concession to an argument that was made by a lot of the opponents of sit-in movements in which they were trying to say that even if you accept that there's an equality principle that's pushing for non-discrimination, They said that it should be balanced against a privacy interest or an associational interest on the part of uh, business operators. And I think that argument was largely pushed aside, but it did actually have some resonance and it does show up uh, on the the margins of some of the legal change that happened. I should just say that if you're just trying to connect some of the story from the early 1960s up to the present day, of course, we're still debating this. We're still debating whether there's some sort of privacy or liberty interest that can Uh, in some ways limit the scope of anti-discrimination policy. And the Supreme Court just last week issued a case uh, called Masterpiece Cake Shop in which it uh, recognized um, that there could be potentially uh, some First Amendment uh, limits to the application of anti-discrimination law This had to do with a baker making a cake for a uh, same-sex wedding ceremony. Uh, so these issues uh, were quite prominent in the story that I tell in the early 1960s, but they do replay over and over again. Anytime you have an attempt to spread an indiscrimination nor- law, uh, norm through law further into society, you get these pushbacks in which people start questioning, are there other principles uh, at stake here? Um, so I am able to sort of describe a earlier story which foreshadows some of the debates that we're still having today.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yes, yeah, so my new project um, is uh, partially a spinoff project from this one, and it's uh, a history of civil rights from the Reconstruction era up to today. I have to say, I know that sounds like a, a hugely broad topic, but the way I'm uh bringing this down to size is my focus is on civil rights as a term, as a label and how that phrase has been used in different ways throughout American history. So civil rights first emerged uh, as a discrete topic and, um, or matter of law in the 1860s right after the civil war when the reconstruction congress is passing laws we have the first federal civil rights laws passed in 1866 as part of the uh, discussion over the 14th amendment and then i trace how the concept of what is and what is not a civil right how it um, flows from the 1860s up into the 20th century briefly stopping with the sit-ins because i was fascinated By a lot of the student sit-in protesters who actually said what we're doing is not civil rights, which is just an interesting statement, you know, considering that the sit-in movement is one of the iconic moments of what we consider the civil rights movement. Some of them at the time actually said, no, we're not doing civil rights. Civil rights is what the lawyers do. We're doing something else. And they had different names for what they were doing. And then I trace it up to today where we have a lot of debate today over um, what is a valid civil rights claim and whether conservatives, uh, you know, have the right to Stake out civil rights claims that are all different from the kind of claims that uh, liberals embrace So it's a very different project. The a sit-in book was a very sort of narrow focus on four or five years in the 1960s. The second project is um, uh, Taking several steps back and trying to see how a particular concept unfolds over time and in all different uh, number of different circumstances Well, it sounds like a very interesting project.
0: We'll see (laughs) Well, Chris, uh, thank you very much for taking some of your uh, time to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.